I don't know that we have very effectively um, exchanged what I think is an appropriate expression on today, so I'm going to offer again to say, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. All right. I've uh, already heard word from my children through texts and uh, various phone calls, and, and as they're far away uh, this weekend, they've said, well, Dad, have you played really loudly first thing in the morning, the Hallelujah Chorus, and wake up the whole house? And, and I had to admit that, no, I haven't done that uh, this particular year. But I must say, uh, my, my kids are reflecting back to me how much they appreciate singing the great hymns of the church and to be able to express, uh, along with many saints before us, uh, this kind of music. I really appreciate uh, those of us who've helped uh, make this music happen today. I give thanks to God for that. Would you bow with me in prayer? <clears throat> Lord, on a day like today, how can we not proclaim your word? A word of victory, a word of hope, a word of salvation, a word of truth for every single person, not only here, but every single person on the face of this globe. So, Father, I pray that you might do your mighty work, that you might take your word and use a broken, fallible person like myself but that you would make your truth known in a way that would impact and change hearts and lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you've had the experience that I have had when I was a child. I can remember looking at various vehicles as we're driving around the car. My parents are driving us around. I noticed looking directly at, and I used to, by the way, I used to ride in the back of our station wagon. Uh, we used to have seats that looked backwards, looking out the window of the station wagon. That's usually where I would sit. And I remember looking uh, in, out the window uh, as we went along, and there's an ambulance behind me. And I mentioned to my parents, look at this weird, what has happened to the spelling of this word? And so I noticed that the painting of letters on the front of this ambulance was E-C-N-A-L-U-B-M-A. And when I asked that question, my father, I believe, said to me, he said, well, son, uh, there's a reason for that. That's not an, an accident. That was not a mistake. It's not an error. It's an intentionally painted that way. I said, why would someone paint it backwards? And his comment was, well, when you look through the rearview mirror as a driver and you read those letters, you can read ambulance and you know what vehicle is trying to go around you. Now this morning, I want to do a similar kind of approach in the use of a mirror, in the sense that I'm not trying to be tricky, I'm not trying to do something that is meant to deceive or in any way try to confuse you, but I believe we have before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I hope you'll make your way to that wonderful chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, page 1369 in your pew Bible, there's a fascinating passage of scripture here in which Paul lays out very important understandings of the gospel. And in so doing, he presents a, a groundwork, a, a basic truths that are unshakable, unchangeable, that are essential for the Christian faith. 
I want to read those to you, verses 1 to 11. Now I make known to you, brethren, this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve. And after that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And all that is good up to that point. That is a rich and incredible affirmation of the truth of the gospel and Paul's understanding of why it's so significant. But then he goes on because he then is going to speak to an issue of apparently some among the brethren in this particular local church in Corinth have expressed a high level of skepticism regarding resurrection from the dead. They have said, to some extent, they have dismissed the fact that there is such a thing as a resurrection from the dead. And Paul picks up on that, and now he argues a very logical argument. If you're going to say that, he's going to say, well, look at what logically would fall from that. Verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we only and if and if we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now what Paul is saying again in this text is he's affirming that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the cornerstone of Christianity. That if you say that Christ is still lifeless in a tomb, you have just declared that the Christian faith has collapsed and is worthless and is a joke. Paul wrote a section here, in those verses 12 to 19, that are looking at the logical consequences of a denial of such a thing as a resurrection from the dead. Now, instead of following this, what I would call a negative domino deduction, One thing falls after another, after the other. If you deny this, then this is what's going to fall out from that. Rather than follow those technically on that level, 
on what is lost and what is eliminated if Jesus did not rise from the dead. I want to consider the text from the reverse. That is, I want to understand Paul's positive affirmations. And so in a sense, I want you to sort of read the passage here and think about the passage, as it were, if you're looking at it from a rearview mirror. Follow me here. What I'm saying is I want to look at the logical implications of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, positively speaking. Now, I'm not trying, again, to deny what he's saying here. I'm just trying to say it in a, in a positive way rather than from a negative point of view. I'm going to argue that since Jesus is alive, this is what's true. Let's begin here with point number one. Verses 18 and 19. Since Jesus has been raised from the dead... I affirm to you that the gospel provides meaning for life in this world and hope for the future. Look what he says in verses 18 19. Paul says again, negatively speaking, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's it. No more. They no longer exist. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, Paul says, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus remains in the grave, where he was buried, where he was, where he was given and where he received hundreds of pounds of spices to try to somehow overcome the stench of death and decay. If he's still there in the grave, there is no reason to be hopeful about anything after one dies. All we are left with in this fallen world is a meaningless existence, a nothingness to life. If Jesus is dead, our earthly existence is merely dust in the wind. Now I'm going to show my age here and admit that I was in college in which there was a song that was sung by a guitarist named Kerry Livren from a band called Kansas. And he had been reading some Native American writings. And in the late 70s, he wrote a song, Dust in the Wind. And the words are not very long, not very profound, but he just says, it's the same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Now don't hang on, nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky, it slips away and all your money won't buy, won't another minute buy. All we are is dust in the wind. What he's saying there is that he's affirming from that point of view, which again is denying the resurrection, it's, it's saying that when you die, that's it, that's it. If Jesus' dead body still lies in a grave somewhere, then, there, then any hope of life beyond death has just evaporated. And all we're left with is a noteworthy teacher of sorts named Jesus who lived a humble life, maybe true, but he was a liar if he's still dead because his promises are not worth considering because he said this, Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Well, if he's dead, 
That doesn't hang true. But from Paul's point of view, and look at verse 20, and this is what I'm trying to say to you. Let's look in the rear view mirror here. Paul is actually insisting that Jesus is alive. And he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. And since Jesus is alive, he is then now able to follow through on what he has promised. And what he promised in John 14, verse 19, is because I live, you will live also. He also promised in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life to them, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, the Apostle Paul had many people in his generation who saw him as a person dedicating his life and proclaiming the message about a resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And they said, what a pitiful, pathetic person involved in this kind of involvement of speaking about a, a resurrection from the dead. And they looked at his life and saw all that he was investing in, and some people would say, what a loser you are. And Paul is aware of that. Many people thought of him as a fool for dedicating his life to a crucified Savior. But Jesus Christ, who was raised to life, confronted Paul and stopped him in his tracks. And his world was turned upside down. As a matter of fact, Paul was so powerfully changed by the gospel and the time in which he was confronted by the living Christ that he was no longer, his life took such a radical change that he no longer wanted to pursue the things that were most important to him, that his whole life was built around. His whole life was built around increasing his confidence on how well he performed as a religious person. He was all about that. He was so dedicated, he was so zealous, he was determined to be better than anybody else around him, and he was. But his life's purpose changed radically after that encounter with the living Christ. No longer did Paul try to impress other people by his seeking their approval, by trying to outdo them, and so he was really trying to measure himself by other people and trying to impress them by living in such a way that he really was looking for the approval of and praise of others. He was granted approval by God through Jesus Christ in the gospel. And therefore, he no longer needed or nor desired that approval of man. He, then for, he therefore had a passion to know Christ, the living Christ. And he wanted to know the power of that resurrection in his life, Philippians chapter 3. It was Paul who said, because Jesus is alive, he says, I am confident that my own resurrection will take place someday. His perspective radically changed. His pursuits changed. Instead of maligning followers of Jesus, he himself became one who was mistreated and one who was mocked. As a matter of fact, when you read some of his own story in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that he was afflicted in every way because he was following Jesus. He was persecuted. He was struck down. He was always carrying about in his body the dying of Jesus. That's how he was being treated from city after city after city. He says he was constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. But because Jesus is alive, Paul had no need of being pitied by other people. He was fully assured that his life is not in vain. Since Jesus rose from the dead, 
The gospel is indeed good news for the here and the now as well as the future. You see, life is not merely meaningless suffering, followed by meaningless suffering, followed by more meaningless suffering in in this world, followed by meaningless nothingness after that. It's interesting to hear how Paul began to see life so much differently because of his relationship with Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God. His troubles that he endured in the world, which were rather profound, rather significant, not just minor, you know, he has a little bit of splinter in his finger. This man was being stoned. This man was being arrested and beaten again and again as a follower of Jesus. But Paul says, what I'm enduring in this world because of Christ and because of the resurrection of Christ, he says, I am dealing with light and momentary afflictions. And he said, not only is, are the, these are just light and momentary afflictions, he also talked about those that are going to be followed by ongoing eternal communion with the true and living God among whom he would enjoy an eternity of fellowship. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we are assured that one day, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have repented of our sins, those of us who have come to Christ in faith, one day we will enjoy an eternity devoid of tears, devoid of mourning, devoid of crying or pain, or even death. Revelation 21. Because Jesus overcame the dead and the grave, Paul was absolutely confident that he was going to be swallowed up in life. He went on to say, and this is his, you know, rather than looking for pity, this is Paul's testimony. This is Paul's affirmation. He says, you don't need to pity me and feel sorry for me. He says, this is my testimony, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.21. The Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of my humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. That, my friend, is the viewpoint of a person whose life has found ultimate meaning and significance and purpose and hope in this world and the life to come. Now let me add a little footnote. Carrie Livgren, the author of Dust in the Wind, no longer views life as meaningless and empty and worthless. But I read online, as he describes himself at his own website, he's a committed follower of Jesus Christ, coming to faith soon after the time he wrote that song in the early 1980s. He goes on to describe himself as someone who teaches an adult Sunday school class at the Topeka Bible Church. Here's a person who, like Paul, has seen the power of the resurrection transforming their view of life, assuming that there is no resurrection, it is meaningless and void. But now understanding and and coming to faith in Christ, the risen Savior, their world has been given tremendous meaning and a future hope. Let me move on to a second point. Again, looking in our rearview mirror, we are continuing to look at this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul expanded his logical reflections on the denial of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You'll notice in verse 15, 
he makes this statement. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we, as these witnesses, we testified against God that God raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. See, Paul was aware that if you turn this around positively, he's actually saying that since Jesus has been raised from the dead, point number two, he's saying that Christianity is credible and Christianity is historically reliable. Now, many of you may have known someone in your life or you have actually been the person who has studied religion as a major in college. And you may have been taught, or many people have, that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible they talk about, yes, he is alive. But they always define what that means. They go on to say in many liberal settings that he's alive only in a symbolic understanding of being alive. He's not really bodily raised from the dead, they would say. They, they would read the biblical narratives about Jesus and the resurrection. They would understand those to be legends. These are teaching overall principles and truths about forgiveness and hope and things can be better and there's the longing for spring and life and all those kind of things. These are really myths that are intended to represent higher aspirations of hopefulness and optimism. But may I say to you that if that is your view of the gospel narratives, that doesn't seem to jive with the reading of those gospel narratives. They are not read as legends. They are not, descri- they are not put together uh, as if they are mythological stories because as you read them, there's a sense of historical accuracy and reliability to them that is just a powerful effect upon the reader. For example, as you read the gospel narratives, do you, you notice that Jesus says to Thomas in John 20, touch my body, my resurrection body. Touch it. Look at the holes in my hands. Put your hand in my side. There's a real body there. This is not some sort of myth. And Jesus in John 21 ate real fish cooked on a real fire beside a real Sea of Galilee. Another interesting thing is you look at this text right here in 1 Corinthians 15. You ever wondered what's with all these names they mentioned? Why do they drop all these names? Actually, in the Gospels, you read a name Clopas. I'm like, who's this Clopas person? And and why do they list some names and not all names? May I suggest to you, as you look and do some more research on this, that the idea of mentioning the name of an eyewitness in the first century was really an attempt as a compelling way to communicate in first century fashion that I'm going to put a footnote in this writing by mentioning this name. It's like a footnote, and that footnote is saying these eyewitnesses are still here for you to interview if you don't believe what I'm saying. Paul mentioned them. Look at here in the text we have before us, verses 5 to 8. Paul mentions that Jesus appeared in his resurrected body to Cephas, the twelve, to James, more than 500 people. Then notice what he says in verse 6. He says, a few of these eyewitnesses have died by the time I'm writing this book. But then what does he say? But most of them still are alive. He says the fact that the gospel writers not only, not only mention names as Paul does, but isn't it interesting that the gospel narratives also, not as myth, not as legend, they list the fact that women 
were the first eyewitnesses, the first people to encounter the empty tomb, the first people to be told that Jesus was alive. Now to us, that seems normative. That seems like, okay, that's what happened. These women came early in the morning. They had spices. They were going as devoted followers to that particular grave. But if you understand what that would sound like in the ears of a first century person reading this, you would go, whoa, wait a minute. That's really strange that you would cite women because, again, it is not myth, it's not legend. No one would have included the testimony of women eyewitnesses at that time if you wanted to be believed because, unless it was true, because the reason is that most, a woman's testimony, first century, was not permitted in a Roman court of law or a Jewish court of law. And here the teaching of Jesus' resurrection is clearly seen to be not symbolic speech. It is the testimony of credible, reliable eyewitnesses. Now there's another reason that we know that this testimony was not made up like a legend or a myth. Because the personal encounters that people had with the risen Christ dramatically changed their lives. There's no way to explain how a person like Paul, who at one time was adamantly opposed to the Christian faith, how he would end up reversing his allegiance if he was not completely convinced that Jesus was indeed alive. Earlier in his life, Saul the Pharisee, a very dedicated Jewish spiritual leader, was offended highly by the gospel about Jesus Christ. Because his notion, as he understood it, of a crucified Messiah would be, in his mind, a contradiction in terms. The two could never go together. And matter of fact, he says, Messiahs were known to be people who triumph. They were the victors. And to think of Jesus as some sort of messianic figure who, who was defeated, who was dishonored to be put on such a cross, he said was close to probably, he would have thought, as close to being as blasphemous of any idea you could come up with. And hence, that's why he was so adamantly trying to obliterate all forms of the Christian observance and practice. And so after he was confronted by the resurrected Jesus, isn't it fascinating that all of his objections about Jesus faded away? The resurrection shattered his assumptions, reversed his beliefs. And I'm aware that there are many people who, when they look at Christ, they find, you know, there are many things about the Christian faith i got a lot of objections to. I don't like what it says about sexuality. I don't like what it says about money. I don't like what it says about this or that. And so people have all sorts of objections to Christianity. But may I suggest to you, rather than focusing on those objections, just consider for yourself, is Jesus alive or not? Because if he is alive, if he indeed was raised from the dead, you should look at the evidence for that. It's compelling. I think you will find that many of your objections will fade to the background. Because what difference does it make if Jesus is not alive? Who cares what the, teachers, what the scriptures teach about? All kinds of tough topics. But if Jesus is alive, if he indeed is Lord, if he is indeed the one who will judge all of the living and the dead, it makes all the difference in the world 
And those issues and hang-ups that so many people have will become less of an objection and issue if you are convinced that Jesus is indeed the unique, authentically uh, vindicated Son of God risen from the dead. And therefore, if he is, he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of your service. He's worthy of yielding your life to him and surrendering to him and giving him your all. How do you explain the boldness of the early members of the Christian church? They were threatened. They were intimidated by saying, you keep declaring this Jesus and his resurrection, we're going to throw you into prison. Even even imprisonment didn't keep them from doing. They didn't stop. They kept proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Why would they risk their lives? If indeed it was a lie, if indeed it was a scheme, if indeed it was some sort of conspiracy, and they knew himself that he was not dead, they just whisked his body off somewhere, why would they risk their lives and die like martyrs? That's why Paul says right here, 1 Corinthians 15, first century eyewitness accounts, they are reliable, they are convincing. So much so that the traveling partner of Paul in one of his missionary journeys, a man by the name of Luke, who was a physician, Dr. Luke, we could call him. He interviewed many people. He was a well-educated man. And we read in his two Gospels he writes, Gospel of Luke and also what would you call really the, the second part of Luke is the book of Acts, that we read in Acts 1-3 that, that, Paul, that, that Luke investigated everything carefully. Sorry, Luke 1. And he concluded that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to his apostles over a period of 40 days. Those who bear witness to Jesus' resurrection, they're not deceivers. They're not false witnesses. They agreed and they were 100% convinced that God raised Jesus the Messiah from the dead and therefore he is Lord. He is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be served. He is worthy to be obeyed. Therefore, that's why you read the early Christian martyrs, the early Christians, they worshipped him and they witnessed for Christ. They worshipped and they witnessed. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus really was raised from the dead. So that raises the question for you and me. Do you understand Christ as being raised from the dead and therefore he is Lord, therefore he is the one that you serve? You have bend your knee to him and you yield to him in his ways. You confess him as your Lord and your master. He's worthy of that, my friend. If you don't do it in this world, you'll do it in the world to come. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. He is Lord. Christianity is credible. It's historically reliable. It's not a leap in the dark. And that brings me to my third point. We have seen that indeed the gospel provides meaning for this life, hopeful future. Christianity is credible, historically reliable. Well, since Jesus has been raised from the dead, Believing on him is vital, and believing on him is essential. Look at verse 14. Paul says, If there is no resurrection from the dead, then our preaching is vain. It's empty. Your faith is empty, worthless, of no value. And that would make sense, wouldn't it? Think about it. If Jesus remains dead, and he predicted at least twice and said, 
He's going to be killed. Three days later, he would rise from the dead. He's made predictions that he was going to rise from the dead. If he's still dead, however, then I ask you, why trust him? Why trust someone who's unreliable and who's untrustworthy? makes no sense to trust Jesus' promise to save his people from their sins if he himself remains under the curse of sin. So we're dealing with this issue of trust. Is he worthy of being trusted? What happens if we hold a mirror now up to verse 14? What do we read? Well, we understand that faith in Christ, because he has been raised, that proclaiming that truth is not empty or vain, and, and faith in Christ is not empty and vain. It is vital. It is necessary. It is essential. Since Jesus is alive, therefore the gospel is powerful and the gospel is transformative. Look what he says in verse 3 and 4, earlier in the text. He says that he delivered to them the first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. The truth is, this is the foundation upon which we build our faith and our life. It is built on what God has done, not on how you feel, not on whether you like it or you don't like it. It is truth rooted in history of what God has done in Christ. And therefore, Jesus did not die for his own sins. The text of Scripture says right there what? It says that Jesus, the gospel says, Jesus did not die for his sins. He died as a, as a sinless Lamb of God, and he died as one who was without, without blemish, as it were. He died for our sins. His death was not a consequence of his own law-breaking. As the sinless Son of God, he died as the sin substitute of everyone who places their trust in him. And Jesus paid the full debt that was owed to God for the sins of his people. And the gospel is not just this. Jesus died on the cross. Some people think that's where they sort of stop. But that's not what the full gospel, my friends. It must also include the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on the third day. Why is that? Because the resurrection serves as a paid in full receipt. What do you mean? Well, think about our memory verse you find it on the back of your bulletin. We've been thinking this month about the significance of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Romans 4.25 Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions and he was raised because of our justification. That is, to being declared just, being declared right with God. What this means is that God vindicated Jesus. He vindicated Jesus' payment for sin by raising him from the dead, therefore making it very clear to anybody and everybody that Jesus did sufficiently accomplish what he sought to do in providing payment for the sins of sinners in their place as a substitute, and therefore the empty tomb is God the Father's confirmation that those who completely trust in Jesus Christ and his saving work on the cross to atone for their sins are fully and completely forgiven. I came across this helpful quote from one of my former seminary professors I took several theology classes with, S. Lewis Johnson. He said this, The resurrection is God's amen to Christ's statement, it is finished. I'm going to say that again. That's good. I should have put that in your notes. 
The resurrection is God's amen to Christ's statement, it is finished. I had a terrible experience a while ago when I was at Costco. I go to Costco often, too often. Anyway, and one of the things you know about Costco is it has a huge array of items to purchase. There are thousands of items. And you make your way through the store, and you always then eventually make your way to the checkout counter, which I did. And as always, you pay for your items, and then you receive your receipt. And then as you're making your way out, they always throw these tempting kind of food items at you that are bargain uh, price. And so I happened to stop in and get one of those yogurt things, which I need to stop doing. And so I'm standing there, and there's, there's a bit of a line and whatever, and so you're trying to move your car out of the play, cart out of the way. And so, so by the time I got what I needed, I get the spoon, I get everything in the way, and I'm getting ready to go out the door, and I'm trying to make my way around. I'm like, no, where's my receipt? Because if you know anything about Costco, you cannot get out of the building until you produce the receipt for the person who sits there, and they look in your cart, and somehow they figure out that you... Everything was paid for. I don't know how they do that when you have 5,000 items in your cart. But anyway, so I'm looking for my receipt. I'm looking everywhere. I'm like, oh, my word, I don't know. I know just paid, you know. So there's this sense of dread that I've, I'm standing there for a while. I'm thinking, okay, so I had to put everything down and just go back through it. Eventually, I did find it. So I eventually produced it, and out the door I go. When you think about it, Jesus' empty tomb functions and serves as a receipt that Jesus paid in full the sins of those who repent, the sins of those who believe in Him. And this is why no one can be saved, my friend, if they do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 10, verse 9. Page 1349, Romans 10, verse 9. I'm almost done, hang with me. If you don't know this verse, if it's not highlighted in your own Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and put a star by it or underline it, or it's worthy to be read, reread, and understand and memorize. Verse, verse 9 of chapter 10, Romans. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, not that He just died on the, sin, died on the cross for your sins, but you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Why is that? Because you must understand the significance and affirm that Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead because that is, my friend, your receipt. It is paid in full. All your sins. And since Jesus was raised from the dead, it is therefore I exhort you and urge you to consider. It is reasonable to fully surrender your trust and your life and your everything to Christ who paid it all for you. Given the fact that God declared Jesus to be the divine Son of God, He's not just merely a human, He's not just merely a, a, a great teacher, He was much more than that, my friend. He was indeed the Son of God. He was divine, and He was proven by His resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus' resurrection is proof that Jesus is not a mere mortal. And therefore, I urge you and say again, believing in Jesus, therefore, is not vain. It is not empty. It is not worthless. It is not a, a waste of time. 
Jesus is God in human flesh, and it's therefore not unreasonable to trust him to provide for you what you cannot provide for yourself, eternal life. Therefore, it's not unreasonable, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, to trust him to replace your indifferent, hardened heart with a heart that is filled with love and filled with selfless devotion to your Savior. It is not unreasonable to trust Jesus Christ to recreate your mortal body and give you a resurrection body someday when he returns in glory. And it's not unreasonable also to trust in Jesus to empower you in this world, in this life, to resist temptation and to live a holy life motivated out of love and ongoing gratitude to the one who gave his all for you and was raised in power to show you and demonstrate to you he did pay it in full. Where's your trust? Have you surrendered to Christ? Have you transferred your trust from yourself and transferred your trust to Jesus and Him alone? That is the compelling message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who was, who died for your sins, according to the Scripture, who was buried and was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. I want to ask you to do one more thing. If you have a pen or you have a a pencil or something to write with. I want you just to take a piece of paper, your notes, whatever, just a small little piece of paper. I want you to write one thing on there, if you would, please. Here's what I want you to write. The following letters. N-E-S-I-R space S-I space E-H. I think you get it. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Almighty God, we again are humbled by this powerful message to think that God, eternal God, would humble himself, take on human flesh, live among us, a life of sinless perfection, perfect obedience, and yet be mocked, despised, and hated, that he would be put upon a cross as one who was treated with the worst shaming and disparaging treatment that anyone could ever show. How he could be a Savior, Lord, was made so clear when you raised him from the dead. How we thank you for this wonderful, absolutely magnificent receipt that you have given to us to show that every sinner who repents, every sinner who trusts in Christ can know for sure those sins are fully forgiven. It is paid in full. The, the tomb is empty. Father, I pray that if there's someone here today who has heard about Christ or they've come today thinking that they really understand a lot about the Christian faith, Lord, I pray that today they would be confronted with the question, is Jesus Christ my Lord, my Savior? Are my sins paid for by his death on that cross? Lord, I pray that you would help each person today respond in the affirmative and come to Christ that they would place their faith squarely on Christ, 
that they would trust in Him, surrender to Him, yield their lives to Him, let go of the things in their lives that they hang on to, that they consider somehow more valuable than Him. Lord, help us, I pray, to see there is a wonderful reality of Christianity, of life with Christ, of transforming hearts and lives, of true forgiveness through Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. I pray, Father, that you would work in the hearts of all of us here, that we would not, Lord, be confused about this matter. We would not be in denial. Help us, Father, to be not living a life that says this is all just meaningless waste of time in this earth. Lord, help us, we pray, to live for Christ, to love Christ, to serve Christ, to believe upon Christ, to to obey Christ. Father, may you change the hearts of all of us by your powerful gospel of a Savior who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. We pray in Christ's strong name. Amen.